and welcome back to the ride. My name is Nicole and I'm Michaela and this week we sit down and talk with Warwick Schiller who not only is a horse and rider contributor and has been for several years now but he is just such a cool individual. He's originally from Australia, came to the United States a while back to pursue the horse industry and I just love his approach to to horse ownership and understanding horses and he's just he has such out-of-the-box methods that I think are just so cool and I love listening to all of his stories. Yeah and his out-of-the-box methods they're relatable no matter what event you do. I mean he does the reining, I barrel race, you know you ride cow horses now and you can relate to it no matter what you do and I think that's why he is such a great contributor to Horse and Rider because you know, he's able to work with Jenny Forsberg Meyer, who works with him a lot to produce really great content for the magazine. Yeah. And I think his approach to listening to what your horse is trying to tell you is a huge, huge thing that we forget as horse owners. I think we get so caught up in, in, you know, trying to run the fastest barrel pattern that we can, or, or, you know, making sure that your horse is perfect in, in the reining portion of a cow horse pattern, or even a reining pattern that we forget to listen to what our horse is trying to tell us. And I think if we kind of stop and actually focus on them, they can tell us a lot of stuff that we're not catching normally. So I, I really appreciate that about him. Yeah, I mean, we had so much fun talking with Warwick, though. I mean, we talked for, what was it, probably over two hours. We only recorded about an hour, but we just couldn't stop talking to him after we stopped recording because there were so many other things that you know, he had to share and funny stories to share with us. And he is just such a great all around guy that you guys are going to love listening to. But anyway, um, let's touch on some current events before we go into the interview. Yeah. So one of my favorite parts of the current events this week is the fact that Pepco Boone's Mall is now being turned into a briar. No, I think that's super cool. And it, it makes me so happy that the Western industry is getting that kind of recognition and especially a stud like him who has been so influential in the, you know, in the different cow horse and the cutting and, you know, all those events that it's, it's really neat to see. Yeah, it really is. And I mean, growing up as a child, I loved the briar horses. And I know recently Stingray, the barrel horse was made into a briar and that's a favorite of mine now. And now seeing that Pepto Boone's Mall is and it's in the work for mid-year of 2020, so hopefully soon we will be able to see that and purchase it. But I think maybe even more now than when I was a child, I like the briars. Yeah, I used to collect them when I was a kid. I only have one briar horse left in my possession. I think I ended up giving them to uh, a, a friend's daughter who was fascinated with horses, and I knew that she could use them more than I could. But I did keep my Zippo Pine Bar one. Um, he was a really, I don't know, do you know him? Yeah, I do. I actually have a barrel horse or had a barrel horse that went back to him. So, I mean, oh, cool. he's pretty all around. <laughs> yeah. So, um, I actually had a mare that was by him. Uh, and so, I always thought that was really cool because he's one of the most influential. I mean, you could say he's probably one of the most influential pleasure studs and all around studs in the country. I mean, at one point, it seemed like everybody's horse had the word Zip or Zippo in their name. And so um, that's the only one that I currently have still. And that was because my one of my previous mares was um, by him. That's actually pretty cool, though, that you, you know, have a briar of a horse that, you know, is relation to one that you had. And I assume one that was pretty special. It seems like all of the horses that you've had in your life are pretty special. I know that sometimes us as horse owners, we just get several horses throughout our lives and some of them you know, mean more than others. So having those special horses mean a lot to us. Recently, this past weekend, you did something super fun that I am jealous of and the photos that you have of it are amazing. So why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about that? Yeah, maybe we'll share the one photo on our Instagram or something because it's a really cool photo. Um, so I, uh, at the barn I ride at, we're very close to a reservoir. And so instead of riding this Instead of riding in the arena this weekend, we just decided to just go out for a trail ride. And since they live so close to the reservoir, there's tons of trails to get there. And we went to the beach part and we just went swimming with our horses. We just put them in the water. And, and my the guy that I ride was a little concerned with the waves. So it was a, it took a minute to get into the water. But it was just it was a lot of fun. And it was so it's such a beautiful reservoir. And 
Um, people had their boats out, jet skis, like wakeboarding. Um, people were laying out on the beach, so they were very shocked when a six. It was six horses or six riders, but there was actually seven horses because one girl was ponying one of her horses to just kind of get him experienced to stuff. And so when you have seven horses just come roaming onto the beach, uh, you definitely get some looks. And a lot of the dogs had no idea what was happening. So it was we definitely uh, wrecked some, uh, you know, it was nice and quiet until we came in and then all the dogs were barking. But it was it was so much fun. And you live really close by, so you're going to have to check it out sometime. Yeah, I'm going to try to get Nicole to come with me. And I have two horses, but sometimes, you know, trail riding by yourself down to a reservoir isn't that much fun. But if I could get Nicole to come with me, maybe we'll share some videos and pictures of that. But Nicole mentioned that it was beautiful, but and she also mentioned sharing the photo on Instagram. And we are for sure going to have to because beautiful does not describe what she saw that day. Yeah, I've done a lot of stuff on the back of the horse. And, and I have, like, when I was on vacation, you know, we've done the – galloping on the beach thing and you know going into the water and swimming and all that but it was just it's really cool to to know that like this is a performance horse and this is a show horse and he's won a ton of, I mean he's won like fifty thousand dollars in lifetime earnings he's a you know he's by no means uh you know just just a regular horse he's a very talented one but uh it's really fun when you can just take them outside of the arena and do other stuff with them and I think that's what I really love about the barn I ride at and the horses and all that stuff is that they it doesn't matter if it's their super famous stud or if it's just you know one of their customers horses like uh because her, her daughter is a trainer and and so it doesn't matter whose horse or what or it's done or, or if it's a stud or if it's just a gelding like they all just go do stuff and it's just a lot of fun and it's a nice breath of fresh air when you're in the arena yeah and I think that you know, what all you just mentioned really ties into Warwick's, you know, training philosophy. So I think from here, we will just jump into this interview. Hope you guys enjoy. Today, we are here with Warwick Schiller, who is he he's a contributor to horse and rider he has his video platform he's all over social media thank you so much for joining us today you're welcome this is gonna be fun yeah we, we were so excited when you had time to sit down with us because we're such big fans of what you're doing everywhere really um and we we have such an appreciation for for the kind of work that you're doing with people and to help them with their horses and to better understand their horses and what they're doing um so yeah thank you again but before we kind of get into what you're doing right now, I want to talk a little bit about your past and how you actually got involved in the horse industry. Uh, well, I grew up I'm from Australia, in case you can't tell. Uh, I grew up on a 1,200-acre farm. We had sheep uh, and wheat. And uh, we known the farm. Dad just worked there, but we lived on the farm. And uh, But Dad was involved in rodeo for a long time. He worked all five events. And... Uh, you know, late in the, he probably stopped riding rough stock late in the in the 60s, but uh, around then they started introducing quarter horses into Australia and they started using them in the timed events. And, uh, you know, so we always had horses around. I probably started riding when I was about eight, I think. And it's, you know, it's throw you on a horse and go ride around a, you know, 300 acre pasture sort of thing. Awesome. And, and so how did you get involved into the performance horse side of stuff? Was that fairly popular in Australia when you were growing up or, or how did that kind of start? Uh, well, I started riding in pony club and then we started going, because we had quarter horses, we started going to, they weren't quarter horse shows, uh, they were western shows, you know, and so we, we did all the all around stuff. You do a little bit of everything. You know, no, there was no, no one was specialised in anything, you know. It, it, the horses could do it all, they wouldn't beat anybody these days, but they could do pretty much anything. That, that seems to be a lot of our uh, contributors have that all around background where they literally did everything with one horse. And I think Michaela and I both talk about this a lot on the podcast, but we think it's a huge reason as to why, you know, the people that we work with are the horsemen that they are is because they literally did everything. They didn't just focus on what events they went and they learned everything they possibly could. Yeah. I think it, you know, I think it gives you a bit of a, you know, a bit more of a grounding in a lot of horsemen. 
you know, a lot of different things. You know, I don't like to I, – I, I'm one of those people, you know, you said I'm big on social media. I like to promote what I love and not bash what I hate sort of thing. And it's not so much I hate anything, but you, you do hear a lot of trainers these days say, oh, these young guys, you know, that just get to ride cutters or just get to ride rainers and only get to ride good ones. Uh, miss uh, To a point that they're missing out because they're, you know, not really – getting a whole you know a whole lot of experience a lot of different things yeah it really is and so how did you pick kind of what your favorite event was uh you know so raining had started to not take off by any means but it was you know it was starting to they were starting to get to where they could actually train rainers a little bit in, in australia and probably in the mid to late 80s sort of thing and I thought the cutting was really cool, but we don't have cows. We've never access to cows. And so that was like the next thing that was kind of, it was cool. You know what I mean? It was like, wow, like to see somebody do that, that's, that's, that's pretty cool. And not to like get completely off track, but if I remember correctly, Australia now has quite the association, like the quarter horse association going on, right? It's, it's built up a lot these last, you know, couple decades. Oh yeah, most certainly. Yeah. The quarter horse thing's really big there. You know, the cutting's the, the biggest Cutting's the really the biggest thing there, because and the thing about the cutting is there's no continuity in the cutting as far as the training. You know, a lot of guys went from here over there, and the, even in the '70s, and people learnt from people who learnt from people who learnt from people. The raining kind of had a oh a bit of a probably in the '90s, mid '90s maybe. A lot of the really good guys in Australia either just quit and went to the cutting or went overseas, and so. For a while there, the people who would pass the torch sort of thing were, were not there, and they, they kind of had to start all over again, basically. People that wanted to do the reining, the, the, the people that they were getting influence from didn't have all that experience, so they kind of had to reinvent a little bit. They're, they're, going, they're, on, they're really going really well now, but there, there was a time there where a lot of the, the really good guys, like I said, went overseas. So with the reining, do you have any mentors that you looked up to when you first started getting into the event? Uh, well, in Australia, uh, you know, the, the guy that was doing it really good back then was a friend of mine named Martin Larkham. And he's, he's, still, he's still the best Australian, uh, you know, reigner there is. You know, he's someone you expect to be, you know, in the, in the finals of the Derby and the Futurity and then OBC every year sort of thing. So, yeah, he's been a... He's been a friend for a long time. Uh, yeah, quite the mentor and just quite the inspiration. Yeah, no, I um, I worked on the the Rainer for a little bit, and I've had the opportunity to see him show quite a bit and talk to him. And yeah, he's he's a fantastic writer. Um, but you kind of mentioned that a lot of the a lot of the people who were who were getting involved in either the cutting or the raining or whatever it was were going overseas. You yourself ended up going overseas, and now you live in the United States. What kind of um, prompted you to leave Australia and come to the U.S.? Well, I originally came to America just for 12 months. At the time, I was a banker, <laughs> believe it or not. And at the time, you could take 12 months, what they call 12 months leave without pay, if you wanted to say you wanted to travel or whatever. So you could, you because it was a big, you know, it was a major national bank. And so you're guaranteed a job when you come back. It might not be where you were, but it might send you somewhere else. And um, I really, really had wanted to come to the States for quite a long time. And a funny story how I got to the States, I bought an old F100 off a, a friend of mine and I paid $5,000 for it, even though that, you know, like the blue book on that, was about 10,000, but it had a lot of rust in it. And it was kind of, but when you insure it, you don't, they don't look at the vehicle. You just insure that make model year. And, and so I insured it for 10,000, but I'd, I'd paid 5,000 for it. And I said to um, three different people on one occasion each, boy, I wish I knew how to crash this thing and write it off without killing myself. Because if I could, I'd use that money to go to America. And couple of months later, here I am driving down a road about, you know, 70 miles an hour, driving along and blew a left front tire, which in Australia is your passenger tire. 
off the road into a stand of small trees so that not a big it was you know, eucalyptus trees but it wasn't a big tree because going that fast might have done some damage to me but yeah hit a stand of small trees enough to write the truck off and i just opened the door and stepped out and it's perfectly fine that is quite the story of how you ended up here um but you know we would never like want anything like that to happen but it sounds like it, it kind of worked out in your favor uh yeah i i probably wouldn't have i probably wouldn't have got here if it hadn't been for that because i you know i thought i couldn't afford to do it sort of thing and uh it's funny i didn't even know i did it at the time it wasn't until looking back later i went you know what i kind of i'm big into manifesting so i said i kind of manifested that so when you decided that you were going to come to the u.s did you what were your intentions to get into the horse industry or was it just a want to to try something new and go somewhere new oh no i wanted to come and work for somebody and it just you know it all worked out i um i knew one person in america at the time and she lived in a little town right by yosemite national park called kathy's valley i mean it's there's a a bar that's it i think and uh so I flew to LA and then took a, a flight up to Fresno. Her and her mum and dad came and picked me up, went to their house, and we went to um, Cow Palace a week later, I think. It was towards the end of the year, and Cow Palace was on. And we went up and watched the, the raining and the cow horse. And Tony Amaral was judging. So Tony Amaral is, is a legend in the, the cow horse field. He was judging, and the people I was staying with knew Tony and went up to him and said, do you know anybody who's looking for someone to go to work for me? And he said, yeah, Don Murphy's looking for someone. So I think I got Don's number, uh, called him, went to his place, you know, had a chat with him and started the next Monday. What a way to get into that, though. I mean, of all the people that you could have came over here and started working with, Don Murphy, that's absolutely amazing. Yeah, I, I had no idea that you worked under Don Murphy. Um, I have a, a weird, funny story with him, too. I just started going into the riding cow horses last year and um don murphy was helping the barn that i ride at and he yelled at me to get the cow out of the arena and if i didn't chase it it wasn't going to go anywhere and that is my first experience with mr murphy <laughs> oh so you've been yelled at by don murphy too have you i sure have i am part of the club oh well, there you go join the club so did you want to get into the cow horse or was it more of just you wanting to work for these legendary horsemen uh well i really wanted to learn the reining and, and at the time the reining wasn't that big in california but it was funny at Cow Palace that day watching the watching the classes, like watching the cow horse. I'm like, oh, this is a bit wild and woolly. Not so much the cow work, but the rain part of it. But then they had this big raining stakes or something or other. And uh, and some of them were kind of for me wild and woolly because I I'd been looking at the you know the the East Coast type raining stuff. And uh, anyway, this big guy comes in on this big grey horse, and I'm like, wow. That's what I want to do right there. And it turned out that was Don Murphy. I'd never heard of Don Murphy. That's the first time. That's the first time I'd ever seen him. Never, you know, I'd never, I'd never heard of him before. And it turns out that's who I went to work for. But he's the guy that, that he won the class that day. And and that's it was a big old horse named Doc Silver Jay. He's such a cool old horse. Um, had been a, one of Don's snaffle bitters earlier on, and then he was really good at the the, the reining. But it could stop like a fancy reiner back when they didn't do that sort of thing, you know. Wow. Well, what a coincidence uh, that you ended up working for one of the most legendary horsemen in, I would say, in the United States. Yeah. And, you know, I wasn't. So I worked. So I came I worked for Don for a year and then I had to go back to Australia and I went back there and I was home. for. And when I left, it was funny. I had never thought I could do this. Uh, you know, I was just having a bit of a lark sort of thing. And the day I was leaving, I was going to the airport shook hands with don on the on the porch of his house and he said you know if you want to come back i'll i'll give you a job he said you could do this for a living if you wanted to how did you end up coming back to america and and um how did you end up in california where you're at now well i uh, when i worked for don i met robin who's now my wife uh chased her for a year she ran like a scalded cat and then when i moved back to australia she kind of missed me chasing her and so I, I kind of had that, you know, I had the job offer from Don to come back, and I also had, you know, I was I was infatuated with her. So, and she, you know, at the time, of course, there's no internet, so it's either and phone calls are very expensive, and so it's, we were letter writers, we wrote lots of letters, 
um, and the letters got nicer and nicer as time went on. So, you know, yeah, I was home for six months and then uh, then came back and then came back in the middle of 2000 and, ooh, what would it be? Two. And we were married in 2004. I mean, sorry, 1992, 1994, sorry, not 2000. Um, no, that's great. And, and your wife, Robin, was also on the World Equestrian Kings with you. Was it just the 2018 one or was she in the one before that as well? She was the alternate for 2010 as well. But back then, the alternate does not show unless one one of the horses or team members has a has an issue or whatever whereas last year now the alternate shows and your score can carry towards the individual finals it doesn't count for the team she wasn't the alternate last year dan james was the alternate last year but um yeah she was the alternate the first time yeah i think one of my favorite things about robin at the wag was her saying that all she wanted was this really pretty picture of her smiling in the arena while she was showing because she was just so happy to be there and she got it too I'm glad to hear that. I know that she was really hoping that somebody grabbed a shot of her. Well, she said, you know, that was in the semifinals. And uh, she said she ran her first set of circles. And then, you know, when she started a second set of circles, she's like, oh, I forgot to smile. <laughs> and so that's where that, that's where I've got this really cool picture of her running nine hour around there with a big smile on her face. You have been to the World Equestrian Games and you've represented Australia not once but twice now. What was that like? Uh, marriage, childbirth, World Equestrian Games. All in the same year? No, no, no. Just, just oh. that's how it ranks, you know, like in life events. Oh, I, I got you. I got you. And the, 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 <laughs> first, the first one was, was really amazing because it wasn't just the competing that was so cool. The first one in, Lex, uh, in um, Lexington, Kentucky, we had the, the we had Australia had a team hotel, and so we didn't know any of the you know we I live in America, and so we don't know any of the eventers, any of the I knew one of the dressage guys, uh, don't know any of the eventers, any of the jumpers, any of the dressage people, but we're all in this one hotel, and so and we thought and this we were the first Australian running team for the World Equestrian Games, so we think we're going to show up and these guys are going to look at us like oh these peons you know these like we're going to be the redheaded stepchild of the World Equestrian Games sort of thing, but nothing could be further from the truth. They were very welcoming, and it was so cool. First, as soon as we arrived at the hotel, they're all out by the pool. Come out here, tell us all about it. So how are you going to do that? And, you know, it was it was all that sort of stuff. And then they came and watched us compete and cheered us on. And, yeah, it was, that was that was very cool. And then, you know, we got to do the opening ceremony, which we didn't get to do with the last one. And, uh, you know, that, that itself was a highlight too. Yeah, I actually, I, I was at the 2018 World Equestrian Games, and I met, I met you and Robin there for the yep. first time. Um, but yeah, it was, I think the thing that I really loved about it is that there was a lot of excitement around the reigning, especially from all the other disciplines, like all the people. And I don't know, it might have just been because we were in the indoor arena and it was hurricaning outside, but everybody was coming in to watch, and they all seemed to really love it, and they loved how excited everybody got around the event. Yeah, you know, and they most of those people don't get to see it at all. And you know, the good thing, I think, the great thing about the World Equestrian Games for promotion for reigning is, if you get one chance to impress people, especially horse people who are knowledgeable. And if the first time they see reigning is the local bad reigning, they kind of just write it off as whatever. You know what I mean? But if the first time they get to see it, they, you know, get to see some of those runs. You know, like we saw at Wig, it it makes an impression on you. You know, it really does. I I, I always get chills thinking about being there just because it was just such an electric atmosphere, and you literally have the best of the best in the world there, and the best horses too. You know, because they have to be older; they're the seasoned horses, the you know, the ones that have already really proven themselves. Yeah, it's yeah, it's a, it's just a huge honor to to do the whole thing, and um, yeah, it was. But both of them are both of them are really good. I was in a I was in a much better headspace this time around than I was the first time around, so, and that makes a difference. You said that you were kind of in a different headspace going into WEG this year, or this last time, so in 2018, but you, I got to meet Jane Pike while I was there as well, and you credit her a lot with getting you mentally ready, right? Yeah, Jane's uh, an official title is an equestrian mindset coach, so she's a friend of ours from New Zealand, and so she worked with us, you know, I stopped training horses for the public because I was, you know, I was training horses, doing clinics around the world and doing my video stuff. 
And in, oh, it'd be five years ago now, so it'd be three years at least, maybe four years before WEG, I stopped training horses for the public and was just doing clinics. And so I really hadn't shown much in the last four years. So, you know, I, want, I needed all the help I could get. And uh, so we enlisted Jane's help and she did a lot of uh, work, you know, over Skype sort of thing. And uh, also made us up some audio things to listen to were actually, it was really interesting. She made us this 35 minute audio. Uh, she interviewed us and gave us this 35 minute audio to listen to that she said you have to listen to with stereo headphones. And for the first 10 minutes, it's the same Jane in both ears, but 10 minutes in, a different Jane shows up in the other ear. So you get these two voices going and it turns out it was probably one of the biggest parts of what she did. And it turns out it's actually hypnosis thing. And so your conscious mind listens to the whichever one you can hear, you're listening to, you're conscious of, your conscious mind's listening to that one, but the other one taps in your subconscious. And at WEG, when we competed in the first round, Rob and I did about what we thought we could do. You know, like when we went there, our, our chef, the quick Rodney Peachy said, so what do you think on these two horses you can, you can do? And I said, ah, oh, you know, these two, you know, they're not the best horses in the world. We can probably mark 217 and a half to pull us up. And so the first round I was a 217, Robin was a 218. And we both had the same experience to where it was like, what? To where we were in the zone. I've never felt more comfortable and relaxed showing. Robin said the same thing. You know, and this is WEG, so your, your butt cheeks are supposed to be clamped together pretty tight, you know. And it was just a really odd experience of, of showing at you know, at that level of competition and just being in the zone. It was, I've never been that relaxed at a little show ever. And so then, you know, so totally different. And so then we actually made the semi-final round uh, to try to get back in the individual finals. And I was a 220 and Robin was a 220 and a half. And it was exactly the same thing. We had that same, what the hell was that? And it wasn't until afterwards I was thinking about it, you know, something was totally different. Like, I can't put my finger on it. I got to thinking about it and all of a sudden it hit me and this is the weirdest thing, but it hit me that it wasn't what was there that was different. It was, it was what wasn't there. And what I realized after we competed both times was that I've always had this voice in the back of my head that goes, who do you think you are? You can't do this. You're not good enough. All of that stuff. And, and but you don't know it's there because it's in the back of your head. And, and there's in the conscious part, there's, I know this horse, I can get this horse. I'm never going to go show a horse I know I can't get shown, but that's the conscious part. And I've always been aware of that. But that, that right there, I didn't even know it was there until it wasn't there. That's so interesting, though. I had never even really heard of anything like that. But being a competitor myself, I think about all those times and how something like that would help me. So how has that made a difference in your performance and your overall riding philosophy? Well, I don't think that did much other than get me to compete well at WEG, you know what I mean? But it was such, you know, I, I knew nothing about that sort of thing, but I, uh, I know it worked. And the thing about that stuff in your subconscious is you don't know it's there. You know what I mean? We just, we're just our own worst enemies and you got that, that thing back there just putting you down all the time. And if you, when you don't know it's there, you, you can't do anything with it. And if you think about, if you think about WEG, I hadn't been competing for the last four years. So I, you know, physically I was not as on as I had been when I was competing. Um, but I showed much better than I ever had. So it really made me realize the importance of that whole mental part of that. And, and even the mental part of it, you didn't, that you don't even, know is there i mean that that was the big surprise to me was i just didn't know it was there and i'm sure everybody has it and doesn't know it there it's there yeah no i've i've definitely been known to self-sabotage myself in the arena so it very much interests me and i think we're going to try and have her on the podcast too because I, you guys are the ones that introduced us to her and we've had her in the magazine and i just i think that her philosophy and, and what she's doing can really, really help someone. But um, let's go back to what you're currently doing. You've said that you're not training for the public anymore. You're not really focusing on the reining. You're doing so much more. So do you want to kind of briefly talk about what it is that you like to focus on now when you're training and working with clinic, like working at clinics with people all over the world, helping them understand their horses a little more? 
well, it's changed, you know. You know, the thing I've been told for years and years and years over and over is, oh, you explain stuff to a, you know, in a way that I've, makes me, un it's the same stuff I've heard before, but he explained it in a different way that I understood it. And so that's, I've found that that's my, you know, God-given skill or talent or whatever is to explain stuff to people in a way they understand. And so that's, you know, I've been riding on that for quite a long time, helping people with their horses. It's not like I'm the best guy with horses, but, you know, I think some people that are really good don't know how they do it, can't explain to you what they're doing. And so it's, it's, it's hard. Like my friend, mentor, inspiration, Martin Larkin, he's really hard to, for me to learn from because he, he's just such a talent. He doesn't know what he does. He just does it. You know what I mean? Yeah, I ask him, what did you do there? He goes, oh, hang on, let me do it again and I'll see if I can see what I did because it's just got so much feel, you know. Um, so, you know, basically making stuff simple for people has been what I've been doing for quite a long time. And a few years ago, my wife bought a, a reigning horse. Funny enough, it came from Martin, actually. She's looking for another horse. And there were two horses Martin had for sale. One was a big, you know, doughy sort of a gelding that's pretty simple. And the other one was this little athletic firecracker of a, a horse that could just do the amazing stuff. But he was just a little weird about some things. And one of the things he does is spook at the judges' chairs. And that's why we could afford him. And so I can, at the time, I'm, you know, I'm doing clinics around the world. I get all these problem horses. I can fix them. I know what I'm talking about. I was starting to believe my own press sort of thing. So I said, Robin, you get that one. I can fix that. And so we got him home. And, yeah, I could fix that. That, that that's, Some of that stuff was quite simple to fix. But this horse had a level of just being in his own head I had never experienced before. He was really, really shut down. Very robotic and does all the hard stuff. But showing him. You know, when he when he runs fast, he just gets tight, and he would bounce his hind feet together. And as you know, that's a that's a one point penalty, just bouncing your hind feet together. And he might go in there and do that three times, and she comes out and she's a seventy one. You know, so he could do the, he could turn, he could stop, like he he stops like an armadillo curled up on the run, like he just curls up on the ball, like he stops so deep. And he's funny because he's he's little. You know, he's a little bit straight hocked, like his hocks are almost out behind him a little bit, but the way he stops is just phenomenal. He can do everything. But anyway, the thing I couldn't do was just get him to relax more. And, uh, you know, I thought, I'll do all the groundwork stuff that I do with these problem horses and that'll fix it. That didn't fix it at all. And so he kind of slapped me in the face a little bit to where what I'd been doing with lots of other horses didn't work. I couldn't help this horse. And I'm not pig-headed and said well it's, it's gonna work for you i kind of stepped away from trying to make him any different robin competed on him quite a bit that year and i think she actually ended up in the like third or fourth in the nrha top 10 for the year end thing in the whatever the novice one and novice two some of that but he really kind of made me look out outside the box outside the, i've always been a bit of an outside the box guy but i went way outside that box into what i used to term crazy cat lady land and probably the first thing i started looking into was clicker training and then that led me either further and further outside the box. And, yeah, he kind of – long and short story, but him being so shut down actually led me to realising I was very shut down. I was at a horse expo around that time. Do you know who Barbara Shorty is? Yeah. So I, I, I had to do a present. Some of those horse expos you work with a horse, but sometimes once a day you also do a stand-up, like a – you know, presentation in front of a crowd of people in a lecture hall sort of thing. And there's one that I do, I've done it quite a bit at horse expos, and I call it everything I learned in life I learned from horses. And um, Barb, I'd never met Barbara Shorty before, but I met her that morning. Her booth was just in the same aisle as ours, and I was chatting to her, and then I went to go up and do this this talk. And for some reason, doing, and I've done it before, but doing this one, I kind of shared stuff I probably hadn't shared with a lot of people before. And this is to a room of, I don't know, 150 people or something or other. And Sandy Collier was sitting in the front row. <laughs> That's intimidating. Um, anyway, I, I, I kind of shared more than I probably had shared before, and it exhausted me. Like, I was just wrung out. And as I went back to the booth, I walked past um, Barbara, and she said, how'd it go? And I said, oh, God, I'm exhausted. And she said, why? And I said, oh, I kind of, you know, I let out, I'd let out some stuff I probably hadn't been planning on letting out. And uh, 
she said something to me about Brene Brown. She said, oh, Brene Brown says vulnerability is that, you know, whatever, superpower or something. And so I'd never heard of Brene Brown. So I came home and looked up Brene Brown and really, I listened to her TED talk, The Power of Vulnerability. I don't know if you've ever listened to that, but if you haven't, you haven't, I'll write that down. There's your homework for you and for the listeners. There's a TED talk, so 20 minutes long on YouTube called The Power of Vulnerability. And so then I listened to that. So then I started listening to her audio books. And in one of her audio books, she said that you cannot selectively suppress emotions. If you suppress the lower ones, you will automatically suppress the higher ones. So if you press the lower ones like fear and that sort of thing, you automatically suppress high ones. And so, you know, males of my generation, especially in Australia, but I think here in America too, when you're young, you're told boys don't cry and don't show fear and all that sort of stuff. And when I heard that, I thought, oh, that's interesting. Like, I know what, you know, I know you suppress the lower ones, but I've never thought about the higher ones, the joy, the, you know, all that sort of stuff. And so I thought, hmm, that's interesting. So I kind of looked into it and I talked to someone who I'd met at an expo somewhere who's a therapist back east. And I said, if I wanted to explore this a bit more, where would I go? Do you see a counselor? Is there a course? And they, she said, oh, I'd probably go and see a therapist. Um, a psychologist who specialised in something called DBT, which is dialectical behaviour therapy, which they use, was invented, I think, for highly suicidal adults. But nowadays they use it for adults with any emotional regulation issues, sort of thing. And so I went along there, and so I went to a, I went to the therapist, told her what I wanted to do. I said I'm not having any troubles, you know, I'm, I'm not having problems, but I want to explore this a little bit. And she said, Oh yeah, this that's that sounds good. We also offer group therapy, but you won't need that. We have group classes at night time, but you probably won't need that. And so after about three months of going to her once a week or once every two weeks and not getting anywhere, she says, you know what, you probably should do the group therapy too. And uh, did the group therapy once a week for the rest of the year. So this was, and I could do this because it was the year I took off from doing clinics for Wegg. This is 2018. So I did, we did it the whole year. Still didn't get anywhere. And what I learned from that is you, in order for that therapy to work, you actually have to have some emotions, which is a bit of a... Uh, and I open it, but it, anyway, it turns out that horse being shut down kind of led me to figure out how much of that I was. So that's it's still a work in progress, and I'm getting somewhere. But it was he really uh, he really made me realize that. And, and around the same time, I really started realizing how much horses re read your energy, you know, read your emotions and read your energy. And 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 up until that point in time, I'd been you know training range. You're going to teach them to just listen to cues, you know. But for the most part, I'm not helping people with their ratings. I'm helping people with their problem horses. And, and some people you can help. And over the years, it's like some people you have a hard time helping them. And I couldn't figure out why. And now what I realize is it's what's going on in their in their mind and in their, in their emotions and in their energies. And so these days, I'm really trying to help people be aware of that. I'm not trying to be their therapist by any means. But I'm trying to have them be aware of that. And they, you know, they can do the homework on their own sort of thing. But it's made a huge difference. But what I, these days, the big thing I'm doing differently with the horses is, you could call it correct connection before concepts or relationship before training or whatever. And I've, I have found that training horses is so much easier if you can build connection with them first. So most of my training these days is about that first. And it's a totally different way of going about things but i i have really found that it makes a huge dif huge difference yeah so with that it's obviously you do the clinics so when did you start getting into doing the clinics realizing that you can help people oh as soon as i started doing the clinics i realized you know i could help people as, and it's just the fact that i could explain things in a way that i can understand you know i mean i would have people who would come to a clinic and had had the best information from the best trainers but couldn't analyze it to to the situation in front of them. And and, and what I started doing at clinics was I'd, I'd, you know, I'd explain something and then explain something else to somebody else. And then I go, but see, that's the same thought process as what I did before. Totally different setting, totally, but it's, it's the same kind of principle. And I started gathering these principles in my head and then I started giving them names. And then a few years ago, I had Farm and Ranch TV here in America contact me, want me to do a... A, a TV show on there and so I did I called it the principles of training and each one of those episodes was one of the principles and showing how that principle works in lots of different uh, situations and then that actually got picked up by Horse and Country TV in the UK so 
Farming Ranch, I mean, uh, Farming Ranch TV is on Roku, so not a lot of people get to see it, but the Horse and Country TV in the UK is on cable. So, yeah, it's in UK and Europe. So I, I got a lot of people got to see I got to see that and uh, eventually ended up putting all those episodes just on YouTube so people could see them after Horse and Country TV had had their way with them as well. But, um, yeah, that that's for a long time. It's just having people understand why they're doing the technique they're doing and how you would do it differently in a different situation. If you don't understand why you're doing it and the principle behind it, then you can adapt it to the situation instead of needing someone to tell you exactly what to do. So that was for a long time. That's what I, that's what I was doing. But these days it's almost, I, I just keep hearing it. These days I, the way that I'm helping people with their horses, that a lot of feedback I get is, well, this has helped me with a lot of other stuff too. But that's not the intention. I mean, it's not like I'm trying to say that's what I'm trying to do. But the, the way I'm explaining stuff these days, and especially getting people probably out of their heads and into their bodies a bit more, doesn't matter. You know, you can do that with yoga. You can do it with a lot of things. But when you start doing that, then things start changing. There's a, you know, it's more than just the horses or it's more than just yoga. Or it's more than just whatever at that point in time. Can you explain what a typical clinic is like for you what you guys kind of work on at the start of the clinic what you kind of build for as you progress through the day or, or the weekend or however long it might be yeah so normally the clinics start out I do a bit of a so my clinics are for subscribers only so people that come to my clinics are subscribers to my online video platform and usually we fill the clinics up about six months ahead of time so these people have a lot of time to work on their had a lot of time to work on their homework. So the clinics are really about figuring out where they're at, where their stuck spots are. You know, a lot of the, the so a lot of the, um, a lot of the stuff I'm working on these days with horses is trying to get rid of anxiety, okay? Most people have, most problems with horses has to do with some sort of anxiety, whether it's, you know, a horse that bolts or things like that. But even in, in like performance horses, like when, when a horse is, stiff you know we say they're stiff this horse is stiff on the left but if you're standing there holding him and he's got an itchy nose he can reach around with his nose and scratch his nose with his left hind foot so he's obviously not stiff on that side and usually any any braces they have have to do with being concerned about something so a lot of the you know, a lot of the work in the clinics is making sure that they are relaxed you know that's a that's a big part of it but really I'm working with the horses wherever they're at and so I don't really have a you know I have um, 12 people in clinics and I do groups of three for two hours and we really just work on whatever the horses need working on you know sometimes we're working on someone's flying lead change not very often because most people aren't ready but a lot of times we're just working on on stuff on the ground and even a lot of times on the ground we're just working on the person being patient and just waiting for those horses to just just let go you know and so that's you know hopefully they've got all that stuff sorted at home because that takes a fair bit of time but you know there, there is really no there really is no agenda for the clinic or there's no program for the clinic it's what wherever your horse is today and a lot of times horses are different at the clinic than they are at home people think they get to the clinic and i'm going to be working on this but you know, in effect, you know, in reality, a lot of times the horses revert back because they're away from home, they're in a different situation. So, yeah, it's depending on what the horses do. Speaking of horses, do you have a particular horse that really stands out to you and shapes, you know, your philosophy and helps change you? I know you mentioned earlier in this podcast about a horse that, you know, did help with a little bit of your training techniques but is there another horse or is it that horse that stands out to you the most uh well he's the one that made me look for a different way i didn't learn that much from him because i didn't do that much with him but he made me look at a different way but probably a year or so after that and this was the start of 2017 i was doing a clinic in texas and there's a lady at the clinic had a mustang and it was a three-day clinic and she said he you know He's been out of the wild for nine years. She's, I mean, out of, out of the wild for six years. He's nine years old. She's been riding him, but he just randomly bolts and there's no trigger for it. It could be for no reason at all. And so that's an interesting, you know, bolting's not that hard to fix if you figure out what causes it. But 
you know, the trainer she works with was at the clinic too, and, and she's pretty handy. And I said, so what's the trigger? She goes, I cannot find, I can't figure it out. Some things, sometimes one day, something will set him off and the next day it won't. So that's kind of hard to work on if you can't get to the root of the problem. But the first, it was a three-day clinic and he was, at the time I was doing six in the morning, six in the afternoon, and this horse was in the morning group. I don't even remember the first morning. We just did some groundwork with him. Um, but the second morning, Hannah is the lady's name that owns him, and the horse's name is Cody, and she was working on disengaging him on the near side. So she wants to walk from in front of him, down the near side, and ask him to step over behind. Pretty simple. But as she went to walk down there, he was turning his head and blocking her from going down that side. And she said, so what do you want me to do here? And I said, well, let me just take him. I'll see what I'll do. Now, normally, I would just reach under their muzzle with my hand, move his head back over in front of him, walk down that side. You know, there's no punishment for it. There's no correction. It's just like, excuse me, I'm just going to go in here. But I didn't. I'd been thinking about this other stuff and more about listening to them than telling them. So I went to walk around the side of him and he blocked me with his head. So I just stepped back to the front of him and stood there and waited for him to kind of <sighs> let go of that. And I can't remember what I waited for. He might have been, you know, when horses get tense, they, their rate of blinking slows down. And so he might have got the stares. You know, his eyes might have been staring. I waited till he either started blinking or... Horses that get tense, their ears will stay in one place. They'll be fixated either out or in, one or the other. And I might have waited for an ear to twitch, one of those things. I don't remember. And so I did that for when he got good, I'd walk back down the side and he'd block me out. So I'd step back. And this happened for probably 10 minutes. And after a while, I can walk down beside him. Doesn't block me out. And so I thought, he's been ridden for six years. I can obviously touch him. And I reached out to put my hand on his wither. And as I did, I was watching his head. And his eyes stopped blinking, his head raised half an inch. So I stepped, took my hand away and I just stepped back and waited for him to relax again. I did that for, I don't know, five or 10 minutes. Pretty soon I can walk from the front, around the side of him. I can touch him on the neck. He doesn't stiffen up. And so I'm like, okay, I'll ask him to disengage. Figuring I'll ask him to disengage and then I'll walk back to the front and see if he blocks me out. If he blocks me out, then he doesn't like the disengaging. Doesn't like being asked to do stuff. Nope. Asked him to disengage, he's fine. I walk back to the front, walk back around the side. He doesn't block me, I disengage him. Seems to be fixed. I, I didn't do anything, but it's fixed. So I hand him back to Hannah and she said, what do you want me to do? And I said, oh, I'll just hang on him for a minute. So she's hanging on to him and I went and helped somebody else. And about 10 minutes later, everybody at the clinic goes, ah! and I turn and I look, his horse has buckled at the knees and dropped to his belly and fallen asleep. And he's snoring little dust clouds in the arena. And then he has a roll, jumps up, has a shake, and boom, down he goes again, unconscious. And I said to Hannah, is that normal? She said, I've seen him lay down once in six years. Wow. And she said, he was, the once I've seen him lay down, he's way out in the pasture, and I showed up on the horizon, he jumped up. But he's not, I've not seen him lay down in six years. And anyway, he slept till lunchtime, and he was unconscious. And that was probably about 10.30. So he slept for probably an hour and a half in the arena with all that stuff going on. The third day she brings him in and she said, you know, she's in the morning group. She said, what do you want me to do? I said, just hang on and see what happens. She holds on him for about 15 minutes. Boom. Down he goes, unconscious, sleeps for four hours to lunchtime, doesn't move. And so I came home from that clinic and I, I knew something happened. I didn't know what it was, but something happened and I didn't train that horse to do anything. All I did was listen. Let him know that I noticed his concern. That's all I did. I didn't do anything with it. I just let him know I noticed it. So I came out from that clinic and I looked up sleeping habits of horses or sleep needs of horses or whatever. We all know horses can sleep standing up, but they need to lay down for about 30 minutes a day to get that deep restorative REM sleep. Now, we can't ask a horse what happens if you don't get REM sleep, but we know in humans, if you don't get enough REM sleep, you become irritable or anxious. And we're all mammals, so I imagine it's the same. Anyway, that was three years ago. He has not bolted since. Wow, that's I, I love hearing stuff like that. And I love that uh, you take the time to listen to what the horse is trying to tell you instead of, you know, a lot of people, I think, just try to, to fit a horse their riding style or their program. But it's great to hear when people step back and, and listen to what their horse is trying to tell them. Well, you know, Sherlock kind of told me what to do. And that one, that horse there, Cody kind of proved to me how big a deal that can be. You know, that was the first time I'd ever helped a horse where I didn't do it. It wasn't about me training the horse. There you go. See, I fixed him. I didn't fix anything. 
it was one of those things you can't unsee it. You can't go back from there. But and 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 in the last few years, I, I've learnt more about the science of why that happened. And so, horse, I mean, any mammal, you know, we've all got an uh, an autonomic nervous system, and you have your parasympathetic nervous system, which is your rest and relaxation, and your sympathetic nervous system, which is a fight and flight. But what I've learnt about is there is a a fellow named Dr. Stephen Porges, who many years ago came up with a thing called polyvagal theory. Ever heard of polyvagal theory? So your vagus nerve is a connection between your heart, your gut, your heart, and your brain. Okay, and it's responsible for the parasympathetic nervous system. Okay, well, it's your brake. Basically, the parasympathetic nervous system is the brakes, and your sympathetic nervous system is the gas pedal, if you want to put it simply. Well, it turns, why were we, we've always thought that there was only one brake the parasympathetic nervous system, but there's two types of break. There's two types of parasympathetic nervous system. One is the what they call the the dorsal vagal complex, and the other one's the ventral vagal complex. You don't have to get worried about the names, but one of them is like an emergency break in your car, okay? The dorsal vagal complex is about immobility. So when your horse is laying down, that break is on. When your horse is just standing still grazing, that break is on, okay? It's about immobility. The other vagal complex break works from social connection. Okay, it's the social connection break. And they say that like mammals, when they feel worried, the first thing they do is look for a friend. That's the first thing they do is like, is there, is there some social connection here? And if they can't get that, then they go into fight, flight or, or freeze. And, you know, with the whole horsemanship thing, like this is my space, that's your space, you don't come into my space. That's the first thing I was always taught. And the first thing we do, like they got to stand over there. Well, what you're doing right there is you're denying that horse that social interaction thing. And so if you're going to get them to stand still, they're more using that dorsal break, that freeze break. So that that dorsal vagal complex, you know, the immobility one, it's like an e-brake in a car. When should you put the emergency brake on your car? when you're so it should be used when you're already standing still and in horses really the only time they use that in the wild is when they're standing still okay because but but what happens is you can pull it on really hard too but that's the freeze thing and that sherlock horse that rainer we got he was permanently in free that thing was on all the time even though he's moving so we used to think there was only the brake was on or the, or the gas pedal was on but if you think about the ventral vagal complex, a horse can be very active and still be in that state. You know, like when two horses are playing, they're using a lot of energy. They fight playing or whatever. They're using a lot of energy, but they're not worried. They're actually relaxed while they're doing it. And so what the science behind this told me is why that stuff works, why, why, why connection first works is because that, you've got to put the brakes on somehow. From what I've heard, the way the nervous system is set up is if you take off, it's almost like the engine's revving all the time and you've got to have your foot on the brake. If you, if there is no parasympathetic nervous system, they're running because that's their survival. And so the other one's got to be on. And there's, there's a couple of different brakes you can have. You can have that kind of freeze brake or you can have that connection brake. And I found the more connection you get, like I used to desensitize horses a lot and things like that. And I don't really have to do it anymore because really the first time you go to do it, they're cool with whatever you got because you've got that social connection. You've got that trust factor going on. And it's, it's so much, you know, I was a horse trainer for a long time and horse training is about training them. This is a total, another thing. And I, I think this has been the domain of people who don't want to ride, almost just want to have this Jane Goodall and the monkeys relationship with their horses. And it's almost like there's been these two camps, the people who actually want to do something with their horse and the people who don't. But I, I don't think they need to be mutually exclusive from each other. I think you can start out with this connection stuff and build into even, you know, high-level performance horses. Interesting. So Nicole has actually told me a story about how when she met you guys over one time, yourself and Robin, that you told her that you guys were hippie rainers. Can you explain what that means and what you mean by that? Yeah, so hippie rainers. Well, I think I'm a bit of a hippie in a lot of ways now, not just hippie rainers, but probably what I meant at the time, that was at the World Equestrian Games when you interviewed us. And so the two horses that we took live outside in a pasture together. They've got bite marks on them. 
they're not blanketed, they're not clipped. And so we were kind of the hairy armpitted hippies <laughs> of the world equestrian games, if you put it that way. But, but you know, I really, you know, having had horses in, in, you know, trained horses in a barn and have horses in stalls and not live them in the past together, you're really dealing with a different animal than you are if you, if you give them the three Fs. We, you know, we did a, an article in Horse and Rider here a while ago about looking after the senior performance horse. And one of the things was the three Fs, friends, forage and freedom. The ability to move all the time, having access to 24-hour grazing, you know, whether it's a slow feeder, hay net or whatever, because, you know, all our – these days we have a lot of problems with ulcers with horses, and a lot of times it comes from just the way we keep them. You know, horses are not meant to eat twice a day. They're meant to eat all the time. And, and I do realise if you're, you know, if you're a horse trainer, and you, you can't have everybody's expensive – stud colts run around the pasture together but we're in a situation now we can do it and it and it does work and it, it's just amazing how helpful it is having those horses um live like that not to get totally sidetracked but i think that you brought up ulcers and i think that as a whole we're all starting to realize um how bad ulcers are and i know that the barn that i'm at they're they're starting to recognize that you know oh, this horse might be behaving his, this way because of ulcers or he might have ulcers. And I just think that as as horse owners and, and maybe in the performance industry, maybe in, in general horse ownership, we're starting to realize how important it is to focus on, like, do they have ulcers? How do I fix this? How do I keep them from getting them? Yeah, and I think there's, you know, there's a couple of reasons for having ulcers. One is, you know, if they don't have food all the time, especially if you ride them before they've eaten, and that's, you know, they, they don't have that buffer laying on top of their stomach acids that splashes up on the sides of their stomach. But another part of it is, and this is what I really learned from that shutdown horse we had, this horse, he didn't lick and chew. Okay. You had to prize the bridle in his mouth. You had to prize it out of his mouth. Like his, his mouth didn't work. And when a horse goes in the sympathetic nervous system, they clamp their mouth shut. Okay. If you've ever seen, there's a video that goes around social media of a horse in a really dusty sort of a large pen with some other horses and he's chasing his friends around with a plastic bag having a way over time you seen that one i've seen that one everybody thinks that horse is having fun what's happened is when horses go into sympathetic nervous system like fight flight freeze whatever they shut off the blood supply to their mouth okay because horses are nose breathers and so that in order to be as aerobically efficient as possible in running they need to clamp their mouth shut and breathe only through their nose. And so there's a lot of research these days into racehorses, and if that, that bit cracks the lip seal and air can get in there, they can't run as fast because they can't be as aerobically as efficient. And so what happens is when a horse, what obviously happened with that horse was that plastic bag blew in there, and he was curious. He went over, sniffed it, and then went to nibble on it, and then it moved and scared him, and boom, his mouth clamped shut on it, and he ran off towards his friends. Save me, save me, save me. But if you watch it again, he runs towards his friends and the wind's blowing from a certain direction. So the bag's on the opposite side of his head than the friends. But when he gets over there, now the wind's on the other side. And then he runs away from his friends till the wind's on the other side. Then he runs back to his friends. And it just looks like he's playing with his friends. But the poor guy's petrified. Um, and so this horse that we had that didn't lick and chew, one of the reasons they're supposed to have 24-hour food is not just to have the stuff in their stomach, but that chewing action all day promotes saliva which they swallow, which then as it goes in, rinses the sides of the, the gut and rinses any acid that's splashed up there, rinses it down. So there's a couple of parts, I think, to that, that ulcer thing. And so this horse could have had, you know, like he, did, he just doesn't normally just lick and chew. And so these days I've been really, that's something I've been trying to get, like horses, horses at the clinic, sometimes all we're trying to do is get them to lick and chew. That's 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 it because that's the start of it. That part's not working. Nothing else is working. They'll be they'll be stuck. They can be stuck in low level freeze mode, and all the training in the world won't help that. So it's less about training these days, and it's almost like resetting their nervous system. So um, with with all that information that you've kind of really taken the time to learn these last several years, and um, what are your goals going forward with? with your, you know, clinics and your videos and, and just working with horses. And so what, what are you looking to kind of do, you know, on the future and near out? Just refine, refine more of this stuff. You know, I recently, you know, we don't have, I don't train horses anymore, but I recently had a, a friend of mine has a, he's got a, 
a stud and he's got a couple of mares and he's got a so the studs are a son of play gun and then the mares a smart chick mare that won quite a bit and uh so i've done some work with his young horses the last few years out of that smart chick mare and th these fillies they've both been fillies they have an attitude like before you even lay a hand on them they want to snap their teeth at you and pin their ears like that's just kind of who they are and one a couple of years ago uh, you know, I, I halted broke her and stuff, and she ended up having quite a bit of an attitude. And the one the next year, I had a, a girl from uh, when she actually stayed at our place while we're at WEG. The thing was, she came out from Texas to look after the place, and I was going to help her learn stuff before and after WEG while she looked after the place while we're here. So she's an, um, a young lady from Texas, but she's got an amazing way with horses. And we both learned foal handling from a fellow in Australia named Luke Thomas, who has a job once a year, halter breaking 150 thoroughbred weanlings that are still on their mother at a big thoroughbred place. And uh, Luke spent a lot of time with Ray Hunt and just has this foal thing figured out. It's just, he's like a magician. So I spent a couple of weeks there learning it, but she actually went there after me and spent three months learning it. And so we went over to work with this, this the second foal of these two, you know, the year later. And she was going to be exactly the same as the first one, had the same kind of attitude and stuff. And after a couple, and Becca is her name, she's videoing it. And I'm, you know, I'm making a video on what to do with these foals. And uh, she, at the end of the first three sessions, she said, well, you might want to try this. You might want to try that. And the, the suggestions were so good. The next day, the fourth day, I said, here, Becca, you do it. I'll video you. And it was just amazing what she did. So like, okay, you're going to keep going. So we, I had Becca do it every day and I videoed her just doing all this basic stuff and then and so that filly and a lot of its connection stuff and that filly when she when it came time to you know get her started under saddle and all that stuff i had her here and she, i had the, the the sister the year before and you know she was she was tough this one could have been tough but the way we went about stuff and i videoed all of it and the way we went about stuff i was just every session i did with her i'd be done i'd look at my son on the camera i'd go holy cow that was so simple it's all this connection stuff and it was so simple that it, and it shouldn't have been simple this is this is a this is a tough sort of a horse and and so just exploring that more and really refining that because i think there's oh there's just so much benefit to it i mean i i think i'm just on the you know i know nothing about it excuse me <clears throat> i know not a lot about it i'm experimenting with it and um yeah, it's just, that's that's where I'm that's where I'm going with it. It's it's more about really noticing the really small things, and being very aware of your thoughts and judgments and energy and expectations and lack of them and all that sort of stuff. That's that's really where I'm going. That's interesting. So to kind of wrap this up, we're kind of in a strange time in our world right now. So how have you adapted your business during this COVID-19 crisis? We know that you have a virtual clinic coming up that we plan on sharing on Horse and Rider's page. So our listeners should keep an eye out for that. So are there any other clinics and things coming up like that that you're going to plan on doing? And should we expect more virtual clinics from you? Well, it's not really a virtual clinic. It's a real clinic. People are here live, but excuse me, usually I get a lot of spectators. And so with the whole social distancing thing, we're not going to have any spectators. So we figured we'd just live stream it. But as far as my uh, business, you know, I, I have the online video platform and plus I do clinics around the world. Well, the clinics are all on hold. Um, but, you know, luckily I have an internet-based business and so it's, um, you know, it's kind of business as usual. And the funny thing when this first happened, you know, I said to Robin, oh, well, you know, things have been good so far and we can afford to take a hit. You know, I mean, I mean, imagine we'll be having, you know, less people on the on the thing, but I think we'll still be all right. But it, it's been the total opposite. I don't know if it's because people are um, staying at home and got more time to watch things or whatever, but our business has actually increased quite a bit since the lockdown. So we're very blessed that way. That's awesome. Um, yeah, no, like Michaela said, we're, we're definitely going to share the, the live stream that you're doing of your clinic. We're very excited to see it. And as always, we love, um, your contributions to horse and rider. And we're so thankful that we have you as one of our contributors and members of the team. 
Oh, thank you. It's, 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 uh, you know, it's such an honor to be a part of that, you know, because it's, you know, I read Horse and Rider for years. I'd read all that. I mean, I used to be a huge reader of articles and go out and try it and read it again and read it again. And it's just, you know, it's an honor to actually be having my stuff in there. Well, thank you again for taking time out of your busy day to, to sit down with us and talk to us a little bit more about you as a rider and your life growing up and just just you and your horse life. So thank you so much again for, for coming on the podcast and talking with us. Yeah, well, thanks again for having me. It's been great. Thank you guys for tuning into the Ride Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode and please be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Horse and Rider Magazine on social media and find us at horseandrider.com. If you guys have any questions or comments, please be sure to hit us up at horseandrider at aimmedia.com. We want to hear from you guys. And if you like what you're listening to, be sure to leave us a review on iTunes. How many stars, Michaela? Five stars, please.